Molecular Minute podcast, the healthcare podcast focusing on precision oncology, molecular profiling, and how both are heavily integrated in taking care of patients and in advancing therapeutics for cancer care, as well as improving the outcomes of patients with cancer. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Caris Life Sciences. Today's podcast is with Dr. Tian Zhang from Duke University, and I will be talking with her about the recent advances and the recent data that have been presented at the last virtual American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting on all topics urothelial cancer. Back when I was in training long, long time ago, and I can't tell you when because this will give away my age, really there wasn't much going on for urothelial cancer. There were some debate, there was some debate about uh, whether any patient should get chemotherapy in the early stages of the disease. And in metastatic disease, there was really anything that was remotely effective. Of course, chemotherapy was given, continues to be given, but the marginal benefit was very small. Things have changed for urothelial cancer. There are more treatment choices that are available for patients. We have better ability, possibly, to identify which patients benefit from what. And at the last ASCO meeting that took place virtually, there was really several presentations that were discussed, uh, and some of these have a lot of impact on patients. In fact, it was probably, and I have to check that with Dr. Zhang when she comes on, it was probably the first time that there was a plenary presentation about something pertaining to urothelial cancer. Anyway, I am really excited to have Dr. Tian Zhang from Duke University with us on today's podcast to talk about urothelial cancer. Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Okay, well, it's really my pleasure to have Dr. Tian Zhang uh, with me on this Keras Molecular Minute podcast. And I'm going to ask Dr. Zhang to introduce herself, where she is, and what does she do day in and day out, and then we'll delve right into urothelial cancer. Welcome to the show, Tian. I'll call you from now on, uh, Tian, but uh, let's, uh, let's tell the listeners uh, who don't know you a little bit about you, what you do, and where you work, and um, um, how do you split your time research-wise and clinical-wise? Sure. So my name is Tian Zhang. Um, I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Duke, and I'm a GU medical oncologist, so that means I treat patients with kidney, bladder, and prostate cancers. And I split my time um, about 60% research and 40% clinical. We've encountered the first ever virtual ASCO meeting this year. So we all attended ASCO uh, from our couch or our offices. Let's talk about urothelial cancer a little bit. There was a lot of things that uh, were talked about urothelial cancer. And I 
promised listeners that will probably highlight, you know, the top three or four, whatever, or five abstracts or scientific presentations that caught your attention as somebody who treats GU cancer patients um, day in and day out. So let's start with the first one that um, you thought is important to, to discuss. Yeah, you know, to frame the context of the important abstracts from ASCO and urothelial cancer, I, I think we just take a step back for a moment and think about the landscape for urothelial cancer. And you know, for metastatic urothelial cancer, we didn't really have any approved therapies, um, no approved targeted therapies rather, until the immunotherapies um, came into play. In May of 2016, we had the first approval of atezolizumab. Um, and followed by the four other PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. And so the, the landscape of um, PD-1 uh, checkpoint inhibitors now is quite crowded. Um, but then um, from May 2016, we didn't get another approval um, for more treatments until um, the FGFR inhibitor, Erdafitinib, uh, received accelerated approval in April of 2019. And so, you know, this has really spurred a new sort of era for targeted therapy in metastatic urothelial cancer and thinking about, you know, routine genomic testing for all urothelial tumors. Um, and I think this has really changed um, how we treat urothelial cancer. Um, at ASCO, we heard the long-term uh, follow-up data from erdafitinib. Um, and then also the combination of another FGFR inhibitor called rogaratinib uh, with atezolizumab, and then another targeted therapy called cabozantinib with atezolizumab. So I was thinking we could highlight these um, three abstracts first, and then of course talk about the more practice uh, changing uh, abstract from uh, the switch maintenance of Elimab uh, Javelin Bladder 100 uh, study. And then if you'd like, um, also discuss the um, adjuvant atezolizumab trial. That's great. Let's start with the FGFRs. Sure. So the updated erdafitinib uh, results um, presented by Dr. Steve Karadke, um, there were 101 patients who had uh, prior chemotherapies and or immunotherapies, and most had more than two lines of therapies as well as uh, visceral metastases. And um, they found uh, that these patients have an objective response rate of 40% um, with median duration of responses around six months. Um, and you know, these um, types of responses in treatment refractory disease um, is quite significant. Um, and I, I'll tell you I, my own experience, I've had patients um, who have had um, treatment benefit um, on erdafitinib for a year or more. And indeed, in this trial, um, about 31% of these patients had responses for more than a year. It is, you know, a, a, a treatment that's not without side effects. Um, there were 16% of these patients who discontinued treatments because of adverse events, um, most common of which were hyperphosphatemia, stomatitis, dry mouth, diarrhea, and taste changes. Um, and then the, um, this updated abstract also highlighted the 27% of patients who developed central serous retinopathy. Um, but the majority of those happened early on within the three, uh, first three months and were reversible. Just for that particular study, t tell us a little bit about the patient population because this is a target therapy, right? So maybe what's the target? How do you detect it? And how often do you see that target in, in the grand scheme of urothelial cancer patients? Right. No, great question. So FGFR mutations and translocations, we know to be 
um, pretty common in bladder cancer. Um, you know, depending on the series of patients, it's um, anywhere up to almost 50% in upper tract. So um, cancers of the ureter and the renal pelvis, um, urothelial cancer. Um, and in the bladder itself, um, the, the prevalence is around 10 to 15%. Um, and so we're capturing specifically, you're right, FGFR mutated, or there are a couple of classic translocations um, that activate the FGFR receptor. And it signals um, through PI3 kinase and the MAP kinase uh, kinases to increase cell proliferation. And so when we try to turn off uh, uh, the kinase, the downstream proliferative um, you know, changes uh, will, will stop. And so this is a target uh, um, directed to um, the fibroblast growth factor receptor. Great. Thank you. You know, so we have really changed our practice now, um, both in um, spurring the routine genomic testing of these tumors. You know, I will often test um, cystectomy specimens in high-risk disease. Um, you know, anybody with a positive lymph node or a positive margin that I'm worried about early tumor recurrence. And, you know, try to obtain that information early on so that I know um, whether or not this person might be a candidate for erdofitinib. Um, we know that some of these um, patients who have FGFR mutated and translocated tumors, um, they may not have as uh, robust a response to the immunotherapies. And now that we have erdofitinib in standard of care practice, um, you know, if I know the, the mutation status early on, I might try to use erdofitinib earlier, even uh, before a checkpoint inhibitor. That type of mutation, is it thought to be early on? So you said you check it in cystectomy um, specimens, which I presume are done for localized disease. So in the GU literature, you feel that this type of mutation happens early on and you could, it correlates with, again, having it present in metastatic disease or? It is, you know, um, the FGFR um, pathway is mutated um, in uh, patients with luminal type cancers. And it also happens, occurs in early, you know, even non-muscle invasive disease. Um, so um, when we're thinking about um, these early um, drivers of uh, cancer growth in the bladder, FGFR certainly is one of the um, uh, driver mutations that come to mind. Last year, the Faltus Lab also published a very nice series of um, a preclinical um, uh, look at um, the FGFR pathway um, and how it changes the, the tumor microenvironment. Um, and it, these tumors are generally um, you know, T-cell depleted. Um, they have suppressed um, interferon gamma signaling and, um, and they're, so uh, in that way, they're uh, less immunotherapy responsive. Um, and so, you know, we know a good amount of, um, you know, molecular um, pathway types of uh, details about these tumors. It's just a matter of um, trying to find the patients, you know, and if we don't test for these uh, mutations, we won't actually be able to select the patients that will benefit from this therapy. Makes you wonder, and I don't know, maybe there are some trials looking at using these drugs in the adjuvant setting after, I guess, I don't know, high risk, maybe disease cystectomy, if they carry, if they harbor the mutation. I, I'm not, I don't know if there's a trial going on, but maybe. 
Yeah, no, funny you should mention that. Um, there are certainly, um, there's multiple inhibitors at this point. You know, rogaratinib was um, discussed at ASCO this year, but there's also another one called infogratinib, and it is in adjuvant trials currently um, from the QED therapeutics group. And so they are looking specifically for um, upper tract um, disease that have FGFR mutations. Um, and treating with infogratinib in the adjuvant setting, trying to prevent um, disease recurrence, and exactly as you're you're describing. You alluded there are other studies going on in that cohort of patients. You were going to discuss as well. Sure. So for ertafitinib, for um, well, there is a pretty robust um, clinical pipeline of um, of trials. Uh, there's a phase three that's currently ongoing in looking at um, patients randomized to ertafitinib or pembrolizumab or chemotherapy in the second line setting. So all post-platinum um, first line patients and really upfront um, looking at the direct comparison of targeted ertafitinib versus um, the immune checkpoint inhibitor or pembrolizumab um, and also second line chemotherapies. Um, there's also a combination trial um, that's ongoing, the NORSE trial, um, that's combining ertafitinib with um, a PD-1 inhibitor called cetralimab uh, versus ertafitinib alone. Um, and then it's also being developed in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, so earlier disease settings as well. Really amazing how things have changed. I was saying in my introductory remarks how urothelial cancer has changed over the past 20 years. It's just remarkable and fascinating. But you, you, you seem to believe right now because of these target therapies that sequencing or genomic sequencing for these tumors does have an impact in the way you're treating these patients. Absolutely. Yes. I, I am a firm believer that if we don't test for it, we won't find it. And then we won't be able to select the patients who might benefit from it. Um, so I send our uh, cystectomy specimens I mentioned earlier. And also if we're, you know, even if they have um, uh, TURBT specimens, um, say their cystectomy specimen um, was a PATH T0 and they had a complete pathologic response from their chemotherapies, I will send the prior uh, transurethral resections um, to try to um, you know, figure out if their tumor was FGFR mutated. Um, you know, it really just opens up another avenue um, for urothelial cancer. This is a disease where there's really not a lot of lines of effective therapies. And so um, having the mutation information allows me um, to add another line of effective treatment option for these patients. Great. Okay. What else at uh, virtual ASCO? Yeah. Um, well, we also saw, I think the most um, clinically impactful was, um, of course, the um, Javelin Bladder 100 study, which was highlighted in the uh, plenary session um, and presented by uh, Tom Powell's. Um, and this was a really, um, I think, different um, study design, particularly in the patients that they selected. So, um, you know, in, the, in context, our routine practice had been to uh, treat metastatic urothelial cancer with chemotherapy first, usually cisplatin or carboplatin based. Um, and then we would stop after six cycles because patients uh, otherwise cannot tolerate um, more chemotherapy. And we would watch them um, on surveillance basically until the disease recurred or progressed um, and then treat them with second line immunotherapies. Um, the, the premise for this study um, was to see whether an earlier introduction of um, PD-L1 inhibitor, the avelumab um, molecule, would be effective. 
Um, and so they randomized um, patients who had achieved stable disease or a partial complete response to their platinum-based chemotherapy. Um, they enrolled 700 patients, so 350 patients were treated with avelumab with best supportive care, and then the other 350 were treated with best supportive care alone. And their primary endpoint here was overall survival, um, with secondary endpoints of progression-free survival, objective response rates, and safety of avelumab. Um, and strikingly, they did see a, a survival difference, an overall survival difference. So the patients who were treated with avelumab had a median overall survival of about 21.4 months, compared to 14.3 months for patients treated with best supportive care. And this hazard ratio was about 0 0.69, which was clinic, um, clinically, I think, and statistically significant. Um, the median progression-free survival also improved uh, slightly, um, 3.7 months for avelumab versus two months for best supportive care, and the hazard ratio there was 0.62. Um, you know, I think it's interesting when we're thinking about trials that, um, uh, then, that follow patients uh, for overall survival and, and, and these best supportive care cohorts in thinking about what types of treatments they received subsequently. And what's really telling um, to me is that in the patients who are treated with the best supportive care, um, about 25% of these patients who discontinue treatments because of progressive disease, um, they didn't actually go on to receive any further therapy. And so either that's because of a lack of available standard treatment um, or um, their disease was too aggressive and they clinically decline um, and uh, are not candidates for further um, toxic treatments. And so um, I do think that it's um, important to you know, use avelumab um, um, early on um, and, and think about you know, uh, the timing of our immunotherapies for these patients. Yeah, I mean, and I heard some, you know, there are always um, a healthy dialogue and a discussion when we're trying to critique some of these trials. So one of the point, one of the points of view, views I heard was that maybe you don't need to give avilumab after chemotherapy and you wait until disease progression and the overall survival will be the same. But I struggled with that concept. Usually I'm very open-minded to a lot of critique, but, but these patients really could get very sick fast uh, with urothelial cancer. So I, I, I tend to agree. I don't think it's a very different disease than prostate cancer, uh, especially indolent disease. So I, I feel that you have to try to put your best foot forward, but um, in the beginning, but um, you know, you're closer to patients right now, so you can tell me if that's completely off. Absolutely. You know, urothelial cancer, I think, is one of the more aggressive types when it decides to grow and, and patients can clinically decline and, and become compromised due to disease burden very, very quickly. So I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, in my experience, my patients, um, you know, even if I get a great response in first-line chemotherapy, if I leave them off treatment for a while, you know, in that um, I would say six to 12 month window, particularly um, there are patients who can go from zero to a 12 centimeter tumor within three months. And um, in those patients, you know, it's harder to salvage um, with a second line immunotherapy, um, even if, even though it's within that year and, um, you know, we're not retrying chemotherapy, we're trying to think about other options. And so this really does, you know, allow us to treat these patients earlier, 
um, if the immunotherapy is going to have a benefit, it's probably going to be in this earlier setting and then try to push out and delay progression of disease um, and you know, catch the patients who um, progress very quickly. Um, and then, you know, after we're lucky now, right, in urothelial cancer, we do have refractory um, effective treatment strategies um, like uh, infortumab vedotin, for example, was, had just uh, achieved um, uh, FDA approval um, in the past six months. And so um, we can then um, select patients early on. If we're treating them early with maintenance um, of Elumab, we can go ahead and, um, and use infortumab in that third line setting very early um, and, uh, and try to salvage the response. Okay. Lots of exciting stuff. Anything <laughs> else from ASCO uh, for urothelial? I think, you know, we do want to highlight the one um, large phase three trial that was um, uh, not quite as um, practice changing, but I think important to think about in terms of uh, timing of immunotherapies and, and, uh, and responses. Um, so this is the Invigor um, 010 study, the um, adjuvant study um, of atezolizumab versus observation alone. Um, and so Invigor uh, 010 randomized uh, these patients um, who are high risk post um, uh, radical cystectomy or nephrorhythrectomy um, to either um, every three week atezolizumab or observation. And the primary endpoint uh, was disease free survival. Um, and uh, secondary endpoints included um, uh, overall survival and, and, and safety. Um, and so they randomized a total of 809 patients. Um, and these patients, um, you know, most of them had um, primary bladder tumors. Um, this was a trial where very few had upper tract disease, um, but many of them had um, pathologic T3 and T4 disease, and uh, about 50% um, in each cohort um, did have some nodal positivity. Um, at, in addition um, at the time of their cystectomies and really didn't find a difference in disease-free survival between the two cohorts. So atezolizumab um, had a median disease-free survival um, of about 19.4 months versus 16.6 .6 months for observation alone. Um, and so the hazard ratio for this trial was 0 0.89 um, with a p-value of around 0 0.24. So, you know, we always um, highlight the um, treatments that are going to be, you know, practice changing, but we also have to think about the trials that teach us um, about when to use um, the right treatments. And so, you know, um, at least right this moment in the adjuvant setting, um, we are not uh, using um, uh, PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. And that's a really important distinction. So the javelin is metastatic disease um, patients and the Invigor was adjuvant study. I, I can't help but to ask, um, the javelin, I realize it's metastatic, but also used avilumab which mm -hmm. is a different drug than the atizolumab that was used in the adjuvant setting. Is your sense, Tian, that, I mean, if you wear your clinical trialist hat, you say that this is a class issue, or would you say there's still, for example, there's a role to consider doing a study with avilumab early on in the setting, or we can say right now checkpoint inhibitors have no role in the adjuvant setting in urothelial? Um, 
I wouldn't be so, you know, uh, finite um, on the adjuvant setting. Um, we still have uh, one more trial that's in active accrual um, called Ambassador um, that's coming out of our uh, out of our Alliance Cooperative Group led by uh, um, Dr. Andrea Apollo. And, uh, you know, we're, we're still thinking about, you know, can checkpoint inhibitors be um, useful? Um, so for Ambassador, we're, um, we are enrolling upper tract um, disease. We are enrolling, you know, higher risk disease um, and patients who have been previously treated with um, chemotherapies. And so there are some um, trial distinctions, I think, um, that will, um, you know, time will tell. Um, but it is certainly still an ongoing trial, and the, I don't think the adjuvant question is quite shut yet. Um, now, Avelimab has not chosen to uh, develop in the adjuvant space, um, but I think it'll, you know, the um, switch maintenance phase certainly is a, a different um, setting and um, one where um, patients with metastatic urothelial cancer might benefit from the PDL1 effect earlier on rather than waiting for progression of disease. Um, so a little bit different, uh, certainly very different populations, um, but a little bit different nuance of, um, uh, and I don't think it's a, it's probably going to be more of a patient population um, type of um, question rather than a, um, a class effect of all uh, the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. Anything else with urothelial? You feel we've covered it? Do you see any other yeah, abstract? You know, I you know, just want to comment on there were a couple of um, these targeted with immunotherapy um, types of combination trials that we saw come through, uh, the rogaratinib with a tezolizumab trial that I mentioned earlier, um, and then there was also a combination of cabozantinib um, with a tezolizumab. Um, and of course, cabozantinib um, inhibits MET and Axel and VEGF receptors. It showed a good respo um, objective response rate of about 27% in treatment refractory metastatic urothelial cancer, including two complete responses, um, and also a very promising disease control rate of 63%. And so, um, you know, I, I do think that as these um, uh, novel targeted therapies are being developed and, you know, com being combined with immunotherapies, uh, we will see more and more um, innovative um, combination treatments come through for urothelial cancer. That's wonderful. Really, it's just amazing and remarkable to see the progress that um, that is going on with this disease. I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate taking the time and um, spending some time with us reviewing the most impactful abstracts of the virtual ASCO meeting in neurothelial cancer. Well, thanks so much for inviting me, Chani. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast with Dr. Tian Zhang from Duke University talking to us about the most impactful abstracts on urothelial cancer, the importance of genomic testing for urothelial cancer, and what was presented at the last ASCO virtual meeting. And until next time. Take care of yourselves, and thank you for listening.